Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with David Buss. David is a professor of psychology at the University of Texas at Austin, and he's the author of many books, most recently, When Men Behave Badly, The Hidden Roots of Sexual Deception, Harassment, and Assault. And David and I get into many interesting topics around the differential mating strategies of men and women. We discuss the controversy that surrounds evolutionary psychology, the denial of sex differences that one increasingly encounters on the left, cross-cultural findings in human psychology, the replication crisis in psychology, and then we get into uh, the differences between men and women with respect to the relevant attitudes toward sex and mate preferences, sex differences in jealousy and infidelity, the sources of unhappiness in marriage, mate value discrepancies, what we can learn from dating apps, polyamory and polygamy, the plight of stepchildren, and um, the so-called dark triad personality type that causes so much mayhem, the Me Too movement, and related topics. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. All very useful stuff to understand. And now I bring you David Buss. I am here with David Buss. David, thanks for joining me. Glad to be talking to you, Sam. So um, you have written a, uh, a, a very interesting book. You've written several books, but the current one is When Men Behave Badly, The Hidden Roots of Sexual Deception, Harassment, and Assault. And um, wh- when did you start writing this? Was this a, a Me Too response or... No, no, not a, not at all. I, I well, well, first of all, I've been, I've actually been researching conflict between the sexes for about three decades. Mm-hmm. So I, I published my first paper on it about thirty years ago, uh, and uh, no, I started writing a book and signed a contract for it at least a year before the Me Too movement broke. So it's it's a long term project. It took me about three years to write, mm-hmm. thirty years to research, thirty years, to, uh, three years to write. Well, it's really interesting, and it connects with so many topics that um, are, you know, of perennial importance, but you know, seemingly even more important now. But before we get into the the specific topic of biological sex and the differential mating strategies of men and women, and and all of the logic there, perverse and otherwise, let's just talk about the scientific context in which. We're having this conversation. This is essentially evolutionary psychology that is the the lens through which you're looking at these phenomena. Evolutionary psychology has been and probably still is somewhat controversial. Can we rehearse the the reasons why that's the case? I think that it's controversial primarily among people who don't really understand its logic. So people pick up a, you know, I don't know, a newspaper article on it, or uh, e- even in the textbooks that cover it, and all, so, uh, all intro to psychology textbooks cover it, they typically contain conceptual errors, typically many conceptual errors. And so I think there's just a, a, a lack of 
accurate understanding of what evolutionary psychology is. And I think part of that stems from, you know, in my field, uh, which is psychology, you can get a bachelor's, a master's, or a PhD without ever taking a single course in evolutionary biology. Mm. And so what it means is that all, all the professors, and, uh, you know, don't have any training in it, and they don't have a deep understanding of it. Now, of course, some do. Some pick it up post-PhD or, or get expo- some exposure to it. But one way to think about it is that, I mean, the term evolution, we can, we can start there with some, you know, why things are controversial. I like to say sometimes that it's a, evolutionary psychology is an equal opportunity offender in the sense that on the political spectrum, it offends some on the religious right uh, be, who don't believe in evolution uh, or evolution as applied to humans. Right. Uh, and it offends some on the, on the political left uh, who er- erroneously, I believe, perceive that if they're evolved, in this case, sex differences in mating strategies, then that will interfere with social justice goals. Like we want to eliminate discrimination against women, for example. We want to eliminate sexual harassment in the workplace. And so it is perceived that, well, if it's evolved, it's inevitable, it's ineluctable, there's nothing we can do about it. And, and that's just simply a conceptual error, a misunderstanding of the field. And then I guess one of the reasons that it's controversial in the modern environment is that I and other evolutionary psychologists conceptualize, theorize, and empirically document evolved sex differences in in this case, our mating psychology or sexual psychology. And we're in a, you know, uh, an era where some people believe, it's what I call sex difference denialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, 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 don't, they don't want there to be sex differences. If there are sex differences, they don't want them to be evolved sex differences. And then the final ingredient, so I, ha- I have it all here, in, especially in this new book, is that it deals with controversial topics. So in this case, in the case of the new book, sexual harassment, sexual coercion, sexual deception, it deals with hot topics that are controversial and that people care about a lot. They have strong emotions you know, to these topics alone. And so when you combine this mixture, evolutionary theory, sex differences, and then the nature of these hot topics, it's a very combustible mix, and I think generates some controversy for that reason. Yeah, it's fascinating, this commitment to denying sex differences. I mean, I, I, sort of, I get the commitment to denying evolution. I mean, that, that's just theologically mandated, I mean, certainly in an Abrahamic context. So that's, there's, not, there's not much of a mystery there. I mean, but this denial of sex differences even when it works to the, I, I guess I understand the initial logic that you think any admission of sex differences will work to the disadvantage of women, but even in those cases where the denial of, of sex differences obviously works to their disadvantage, there are no brakes on this crazy train, and people, you know, usually on the left, just keep denying that there's any basis for. Uh, Distinguishing men from women apart from their self designations in the end, right? So it's like it's like a yes, blank slate yeah. dogma coupled to a an identity politics that takes as its only fulcrum what someone wants to say about themselves on any given Tuesday. Yeah, 
And, and, and I think, I mean, that's, I think I'm hoping that my book will break through some of these attitudes precisely for the reason that you mentioned, Sam, is that, is that denying sex differences in these contexts, for example, sexual harassment, some of the topics we'll get into, actually does harm women. I mean, and, you know, we know, for example, that, you know, the, the more extreme forms of sexual violence are largely perpetrated by men and, uh, and women are the primary victims of it. And so my argument is that we really need to understand the underlying sexual psychology of men and women and how they differ in order to eliminate some of these, some of these problems, which are genuine problems. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I guess there are a few other pieces here that could explain a bias against evolutionary psychology. There's one you close the door to in several places in your book. There, there's the, the naturalistic fallacy, the idea that explaining things in terms of evolutionary logic could be mistaken for saying that because this is the way things have been, and we, we can tell a story that there were adaptive advantages in the past to our ancestors for human nature taking this turn, we're therefore justifying, in this case, these you know, differences in, in mating strategies between men and women, say. We're saying it's a good thing because it's a natural thing. And of course, <laughs> right, right. You know, no, one, no one is saying that, or at least I, I haven't met such a person, and yet that's a, an obvious misunderstanding. It, it is, and it, it is astonishing to me how frequently people do jump to that fallacy. But I think that there's some hope, at least for some people, because I, um, you mentioned my, my other books. The first book that I wrote was The Evolution of Desire, Strategies of Human Mating. And one guy uh, who read it told me that it, it, understanding men's evolved desire for sexual variety helped him to stay more faithful to his wife because he found himself attracted to women who were other than his wife and initially concluded that, well, maybe I'm not in love with my wife anymore. But once he realized, no, they're actually two different sets of psychological mechanisms, desire for sexual variety and also the emotion of love, which I think evolved in the context of long-term pair bonding, which characterizes a lot of human mating. And so, so I think understanding uh, doesn't automatically lead to that, oh, it's inevitable and there's nothing we can do about it uh, because it's, quote, natural. And one other element on that is, and this, this example illustrates this, I think, is that humans have a large number of evolved psychological adaptations. And uh, at any moment in time, only some small subset uh, uh, is activated. And so we can keep certain adaptations quiescent unactivated. We can activate those that we think are desirable to activate. And, but, but the issue of what exists and what should exist from a moral or ethical perspective, those are, those are two different issues. Mm. Yeah, I guess there's also the concern that an evolutionary explanation ignores the role of culture, which of course it, it need not, because we have evolved at least for some considerable period of time in the context of culture, and there's an evolutionary description of how culture changes as well, uh, how, you know, whether that's more than an analogy to genetic evolution is, is something people can argue about, but there, there's, it has a similar Darwinian dynamics. So 
you know, before we j- jump into specifics, what can we say about the role of culture here? Because it, it, it's been widely al- alleged that much psychological research has been done on so-called weird people, you know, white, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic people, and therefore has ignored the diversity of people on offer across the planet, and therefore it can't really uh, generalize its results to all of humanity. Given what we're about to talk about, how concerned should anyone be that that's the case? I think that evolutionary psychologists in general are less guilty than other social scientists in in that. And so, uh, I mean, one of the first studies I published on mating psychology was on, involved 37 different cultures that were, uh, many of which were decidedly non-weird. Right. Uh, And uh, also, as I talk about in the new book, some of the sex differences, for example, in the psychological design of sexual jealousy uh, have now been replicated in uh, a large number of you know, more traditional cultures. Brooke Skelza uh, out in California, I think, I don't know if she's in your neck of the woods or not, but she did a study of 11 different cultures and replicated the sex differences. So you know, if you look at the cross-cultural evidence, which you know, it is difficult to gather, but it accumulates year after year. Uh, there is strong empirical support, at least for a number of hypotheses about that that have been advanced, and in particular those centering centering on human mating. It sounds like this is not the epicenter of the replication crisis in psychology. But uh, how how concerned are you about <laughs> the replication crisis? Is that affecting any of what we're going to talk about? And, and just how, how much is that casting a shadow on any of the work you have done or are doing? We should probably remind people what we mean by replication crisis. I, I've mentioned it a few times on the podcast, but I haven't actually done a proper podcast on it. So, well, uh, I guess for the, for the listeners, the replication crisis is that many uh, phenomena, especially in the field of social psychology, in that sub-discipline, have turned out not to be replicated. That is, other scientists come in, and especially if the findings are counterintuitive or appear astonishing or that our intuitions wouldn't lead us to expect those, many of those have not been replicated. And, and so people are going back to the drawing board. But I think as it pertains to my work and the work that I talk about in uh, When Men Behave Badly, I- I'm not at all worried about it because these sex differences, uh, they are large in magnitude and highly replicable. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, from early on, why I started studying 37 cultures rather than just, you know, a couple of samples from North America or Western Europe, yeah. uh, because, you know, you, you don't want to stake your career on, a f- on findings that are not replicable. And so I've, uh, I always try to instill that in my graduate students, that you want to be you want to be sure yourself that the findings are solid and replicable before you publish them so that you don't fall into that into that trap and so and so i can tell you with respect to some of the sex differences in mate preferences that i've documented and that others have attempted to replicate and in sexual jealousy is another example even people who dislike the theoretical lens that i use are still able to replicate the actual results in their own in their own labs mm. And so I feel very confident in this case. I think, in fact, 
these sex differences are among the most replicable in the field of psychology. So, okay, so let's start, let's take it from the top or the bottom, as the case may be. How do we define sex biologically? Biologists define sex very simply by the size of the sex cells. So the gametes, the, that is the, the males are, are defined as the small ones. Um, in the human case, you have basically sperm, which are, you know, little more than tiny packets of DNA and, uh, you know, uh, an outboard motor, uh, you know, adaptation designed to get to the, the egg to fertilize it. Females are defined as the ones with the larger sex cells, in the human case, the, the, the egg, which is large, many times the size of sperm, and filled with nutrients. And so from the moment of conception, and then subsequently, uh, females are investing more, more than males. So some people use this kind of a cliche at this point, but sperm are cheap, eggs are expensive, but it is, it, it is true. And so, uh, and so sex defined in that way is different from uh, things like gender identity or sexual orientation or sexual attraction. And, and so for biologists, it's, it's, it's very clear, you know, that sex, sex evolved somewhere around 1.3 billion years ago from asexual, asexually reproducing species. So it's been going on a long time, but there, there are two sexes. Right. And, and I think there's been also a lot of confusion that has developed when people intermingle that biological definition of male and female with all these other phenomena, such as identities and, and orientations and, and uh, labels. And how old is sexual reproduction? Uh, estimates vary. Uh, but it's some, somewhere between 1 billion and 2 billion years ago is when it, when it first evolved. So it's been going on for, I guess, you know, you'd say a quarter or a third of the, of the time of uh, life on Earth. I think life on Earth evolved about 3.5 billion years ago. So uh, sexual, sexual reproduction, it took, it took a at least a billion or two billion years for sexual reproduction to evolve after that. Yeah, so we've been at this for a long time, and uh, you know, even in our hominid form, we've been at it for a long time, and that, that's worth remembering as we get into the details here, because you know, when, when you describe the different mating strategies and their uh, evolutionary logic, if you lose sight of the vast amount of time wherein incremental changes could have tuned us differently, it can seem less plausible than it otherwise would. I mean, this is just, we have bad intuitions for how much time it need take for things to change in, in evolutionary terms, and we, have, we certainly have bad intuitions for how long tens and hundreds of thousands of years really is. Yeah, no, exactly. I'd, I mean, in, in a way, it's our evolved psychology that causes those failures of intuition because we evolved to solve problems in you know the here and now and in time spans of seconds or minutes or sometimes days and occasionally years but we didn't evolve to even understand 
deep time or or the concept of a, a billion years. It's it's just a, it's very difficult to make that transition. And some have used some scientists have used analogies or metaphors to try to make that leap. So, for example, a football field. Like if you start if ev- evolution of life started at one end of a football field and then evolved to the point of modern humans, sort of where where are we in that space? And you get down to I don't remember the exact details, but something like the last inch of the football field where, where our species evolved um, a couple million years ago. Uh, and then, then when you talk about even things like farming and technology, the agricultural revolution, and those, those are like you're down to seconds at that mm. point. So, uh, so, but sometimes those uh, devices can help people make the leap to try to tune their intuitions to, to deep time. So what do we think we understand about the differences between men and women with respect to evolved mating strategies? Well, uh, I guess we can start maybe just with a few basics. Uh, and that is, I mean, we've mentioned sperm and, and egg, uh, but males and females, let's, in the human case, we have dramatically different reproductive anatomy and physiology. Uh, and consequently, uh, these have posed different adaptive problems for males and females. So, for example, uh, fertilization occurs internally within the female body, not within the male body. That, what this creates is uh, an asymmetry in certainty of parenthood, where women are always 100% certain that they are the mothers. Like no, no mother ever gave birth, as far as I'm aware, and as the child is emerging from her body, wondered, uh, gee, is this kid really my mm. own? Uh, you know, mothers are 100% certain. Men can never be sure. So some cultures use the phrase uh, mama's baby, papa's maybe to kind of capture that asymmetry. But this stems from the fact that fertilization occurs internally within women, not within men. And so this is an example of an adaptive problem that men have faced recurrently over evolutionary time that no woman has ever faced. And so you take this, this example other examples, other fundamental features are the obligatory parental investment that each sex has to devote to produce a single child. Uh, women have that obligatory nine-month investment, and, and it's obligatory in the, in the sense that women don't have a choice about it, really. Uh, I guess, well, maybe some modern technology, I mean, they can, you can farm it out to other female bodies, mm. but a woman can't say, look, I'm very busy with my career right now. I, I really only want to put in two and a half months of the pregnancy. It's, it's obligatory. And nine months is heavy investment metabolically. Uh, it also creates problems for women uh, because her center of gravity is moved forward. And so it puts extra torque on her back. And that's one reason why we think that male and female spines are, are differently constructed, uh, where females have a wedge like vertebra in there, which uh, helps to relieve the torque when that center of gravity is moved forward. Uh, but to produce that single child that takes a woman nine months, it takes man, uh, a man just one act of sex at a minimum. Now, of course, men do more than the minimum typically, or often they do, although, it, although their investment varies a lot. But so you take this stark sex difference in this asymmetry in obligatory parental investment just to produce the child to start with. And then that creates different adaptive problems for men and women, and also a different payoff matrix 
when it comes to optimal mating strategies. That is, for example, and this is one of the ones that I think creates the most havoc that I talk about in the book, is that males, their primary limit historically over evolutionary time on reproductive success has been the number of fertile women that they can successfully inseminate for women. And so adding additional sex partners historically has led to increases in reproductive success for men. For women, adding additional sex partners does not. Now, women can sometimes benefit from additional sex partners, as I talk about in the book, under Why Women Have Affairs, which I think is a really interesting dimension of uh, a hidden side of female sexual psychology. But you, you can see that due to the asymmetries in investment, there are going to be sex differences in optimal mating strategies. And so, so the key point that I want to make here is that, is that it would be astonishing to an evolutionist if you found profound sex differences in our reproductive anatomy and physiology and zero attending psychological, behavioral, and strategic sex differences that correspond to the adaptive the different adaptive problems that those sex differences in anatomy and physiology create. And, and so we, we look and, and there are clear predictions in some cases, uh, and we find that, yes, lo and behold, they, they do. Uh, you, you do find psychological and strategic and behavioral sex differences in precisely the domains where the sexes have faced these different adaptive problems. And, and one of the things I'll just mention why I, I some people say, oh, you're saying men are from Mars and women are from Venus, which I absolutely hate because no, that's not what we're saying. The, the meta theory of evolutionary, the evolutionary psychology predicts both sex differences and similarities between the sexes at the psychological level. And it's a, and it's a very precise meta theory. Namely, we expect similarities between men and women in all domains in which they face approximately similar adaptive problems. So as an example, both sexes have faced the problem of eating, you know, getting fuel for the machine. And so men and women have by and large similar, although not identical, taste preferences, you know, for things like sugar, fat, salt, and protein. Okay, where do you see sex differences in taste preferences? Well, when women get pregnant uh, and they face an adaptive problem, uh, that men don't face, which is namely that substances that are teratogenic, meaning dangerous to the fetus, in, in minute quantities are perfectly fine for an adult woman, but if they pass the placental barrier, uh, they can damage the fetus. And so all of a sudden, women's taste preferences change when they get pregnant. And so but, but this, that example illustrates that we, we expect sex similarities mm-hmm in large areas, perhaps most areas of psychology. Now, as it happens, where do we expect sex differences? Well, they fall very heavily in the mating and sexuality domains. Yeah, that's a very interesting and useful frame to put around this. If you just start with the acknowledgement that evolution is a thing and that the two sexes have different uh, anatomies and physiologies related to reproduction and different resource demands and constraints and fairly discrepant interests in, in genetic terms uh, with respect to 
you know, mating options, you know, extracurricular mating options, infidelity, um, just, you know, how it advantages the propagation of the, the man's genes to have sex outside of marriage versus uh, the woman's, it would be a, a miracle and, and, you know, even a, a strike against the theory of evolution if there were no differences there in evolved psychology. Yes. Yeah, indeed. And, and it would be, I mean, it would be like saying humans have developed the anatomy and musculature for bipedal locomotion, but we don't, we don't have bipedal locomotion, right. the behavior. Yeah, so let's get into some of these details. So the, there's the, um, I mean, maybe we, we could just take kind of specific concepts here and extrapolate from them. So, you know, you have a married couple that is, um, they have shared interests. Again, these are, these are not, I'm not talking about the psychological first-person interests. We're talking the kind of the gene's eye view of things. Uh, they have shared genetic interests in successfully raising children, but how are their interests not uh, precisely aligned, in your view? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. So, I mean, and, and men and women do cooperate and cooperate supremely and over long periods of time for, for that precise reason. That is, they have a shared uh, vehicle, sh- a shared genetic vehicle that's carrying the precious cargo into the, into the future. Uh, but they differ in very predictable ways. So, so one is if there is a possibility for infidelity, okay, and this could be sexual infidelity, where uh, sexual or reproductive resources are being diverted to someone outside of the the couple, uh, or even financial infidelity, when one partner is shunting financial resources toward either their interests or even toward their kin at the expense of their partner's interests or their partner's kin. You have the possibility of a dissolution or divorce or breakups uh, where, and that that possibility creates a potential for conflict. Uh, So I outlined, I think in the book, something like 12 ways in which uh, men and women, men and women's interests from an evolutionary perspective can can depart from one another. So even, even in the case I end with that, ideally, for minimizing conflict, men and women would, the couple would die at exactly the same time. Because if one member of the couple dies and the other does not, then the one who is still alive can remate and then in some cases reproduce and have additional children. And so the pooled resources can be devoted toward interests that are not you know, aligned with the interests of the original partner. Mm. So, so it's, there's a very predictable set of circumstances in which the interests of men and women depart from an, an evolutionary perspective with the qualification that that also occurs within the context of shared interests. Okay, so, so from the genetic perspective here, it's very easy to explain the man's infidelity or inclination to be unfaithful, provided he can get away with it, right? I mean, like, it, there's really no limit to the evolutionary advantage for him. If he could impregnate a thousand women surreptitiously and actually expend no resources on, on them and their progeny, that would be 
an amazing gain for him in, in evolutionary terms over remaining faithful to his wife. And one could also add that, you know, from, again, this doesn't, this is it's an all too common inclination for men, but, you know, we could also say that he should be highly incentivized to donate sperm to a sperm bank whenever he can. On the, I mean, that, that's really the ultimate case where he could father scores of children for whom he would shoulder no financial or, or emotional responsibility. And from his genes perspective, that would all be to the good, but there are very few men who feel you know, any internal psychological motivation to do such a thing. So there, there's clearly daylight between what people feel they want to do and what would make genetic sense if you were going to use the cold logic of evolution. But of course, we haven't evolved in the presence of sperm banks, and we don't have intuitions for how good it would be to father hundreds of children we never meet. But there's something more mysterious, or at least slightly harder to explain, about uh, a woman's tendency to be unfaithful in a marriage. Uh, what do we know about the evolutionary logic of that? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and I, I devote a chunk of my book to exploring that, that very issue. Just one quick comment on the sperm mm. bank. I think you hit the nail on the head with it, that sperm banks are evolutionarily novel, yeah. and we don't have adaptations to things that are evolutionarily novel. And so, um, so it's, that's not really a, a great mystery. As, uh, as Steve Pinker once said, um, you know, his genes, he's never reproduced. He says his genes can go jump in a lake, right. you know, that we're, we're just operating from our evolved psychology that evolved not to these weird modern conditions that we find ourselves in. Anyway, so the, your question about female infidelity, I think it's really fascinating because this is an area where I end up uh, disagreeing with some of my evolutionary psychology colleagues, uh, even, even those who I have a lot of respect for. Uh, such as Marty Hazelton, mm -hmm. former student of mine, Steve Gangestad, and, and, and others, where the, the, the traditional explanation, which I originally thought was compelling, is that, is that women can, in, at least in some cases, get high-quality genes from an affair partner while, re, while retaining the investment of resources and commitment and fathering from a stable, regular mate. And so, and, and in principle, that logic could work out. So in particular, if a woman is mated to a man who uh, has inferior genetic material, for example, genes for diseases or, or ill health or a compromised immune system, in principle, that can work out. Okay. And there have been a variety of tests of that. And, and this is still under contention, but, but if you ask the question, well, why do women have affairs? Do women really have affairs? for the functional reason of obtaining good genes from these affair partners. And what I argue is for a different hypothesis that I call the mate-switching hypothesis. That is, women have affairs primarily when they're, when they're unhappy with their current relationship. And you, you may say, well, boy, that is the least surprising thing I've ever heard. But it's interesting that if you look at men who have affairs and compare them with men who don't have affairs, there's no difference in their marital happiness or relationship satisfaction. Mm. So women have affairs when they're unhappy with the relationship. The nature of their affairs differs qualitatively on average. And they, we're talking about on average differences here. 
in that something like 70% of women become deeply emotionally involved with or in love with their affair partner. And so that, that, is, that would be a terrible design feature if all you're trying to do is obtain the good genes and you, know, you, you don't want to be falling in love with the affair partner if, that were the, if the good genes explanation were correct. Right. If you look at what motivates men to have affairs, desire for sexual variety, novelty, novel sexual experiences is overwhelmingly the motivation, not exclusively, but there's this enormous sex difference in uh, the design of, of male affairs and female affairs. Uh, and males typically don't fall in love with their affair partners, although of course some do, and in fact try to adopt strategies to minimize the, the costs, the risks, and investment in the affair partner. And so my argument stems from the notion that something could always go wrong in a relationship. So going back over human evolutionary time, a man could get injured in in a, a war or get killed and bad stuff can befall any relationship. The woman could get dumped or he might decide he wants to take on a second or third wife, compromising the investment he's devoting to the first wife. And so something can always go wrong. And so my argument is that if a woman would have been left totally unprepared and had to just suddenly, if her husband uh, got killed or dumped her, she would have to re-enter the mating pool, that wouldn't be uh, optimal because women take out what I call mate insurance. Mm. That is, we have, you know, we have house insurance and car insurance. If something bad should happen to our house or car, uh, we'd hope that it doesn't, but you know, it's, it's a backup and that women do exactly the same thing. They, they cultivate backup potential mates and sometimes have an affair in order to exit from a bad or cost-inflicting relationship or to trade up in the mating market if she can obtain a substantially better quality mate than the one that she has or as a transition back into the mating pool. So I argue, and again, this is in contrast to my, some of my evolutionary psychology colleagues, it, it, it's, I think it provides a more comprehensive explanation for why women have affairs and the evidence for the good genes or dual mating strategy hypothesis is the way it's sometimes called. The evidence is uh, turning out to be a lot shakier than originally thought. So there's something there, right. but it doesn't seem to explain the majority of cases where women have affairs. I guess they could both be true, but the emotional entanglement that many women feel when having an affair could be a byproduct of just the degree to which they weight emotional engagement and the prospect of finding a, a caring mate more than men do in in any mating circumstance. I and mean, I guess there's this background fact that we we haven't spelled out yet, which is that men and women tend to value different things in mates or 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 the same things to very different degrees. And you know, by comparison, I mean the the, the cartoon version of sex differences sort of applies. Again, there's going to be a bell curve over both populations and there will be women who are psychologically more like men than most women, and there'll be men who are more like women than most men, so that these distributions will overlap considerably. But 
generally speaking, men tend to be more concerned about how women look than women are with respect to male appearance. And presumably, the, the evolutionary logic there is on the physical you know, criteria of bearing children and being healthy all the while. And women care more about social status and the prospects that the man will be a good source of you know, care and, and resources. And that discrepancy certainly explains a lot of what we see out in the world. But it, to your, your last point, if the operating systems are that different with respect to those variables, I guess emotional entanglement under the conditions of infidelity, if you're a woman, could just be a, a kind of cost of the, the underlying mating strategy logic as opposed to something that proves that you're not actually out to surreptitiously get good genes you know, behind your partner's back. Yeah, well, I, I think that, I mean, you have to look at, with all these cases, the, the weight of the evidence. And I think there has been enough time for evolution by selection to decouple that emotional involvement for women under, some, um, under certain circumstances. Mm. So, so it, as I mentioned, it's a terrible design feature, terrible psychological flaw if, if the sole goal is getting good genes. But, it, but it's, it's an excellent design feature if the goal is a mate-switching goal. Is there, uh, I seem to remember there being research around women's mate preferences changing to one or another degree when they're ovulating. Did I make that up or is that... Uh... Yes, no, 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 you didn't make okay. that up. There's been a fair amount of research on precisely that. And that was the body of research that was used to try to test the, um, the good genes hypothesis or the dual mating strategy mm -hmm. uh, hypothesis. Uh, the problem it, it, that it runs into is, is a couple things. One is, well, what qualifies as markers of good genes? And the, the people who have argued for the, the good genes hypothesis basically selected things like uh, masculinity and symmetry. Those were the two that were primarily focused on, so that women were hypothesized to prefer more masculine and more symmetrical men around ovulation when they're most likely to conceive. But the question is like, why would these two be viewed as the exclusive markers of good genes? So another example is, I mean, one of the most heritable things that we know, and I know you've talked about this on in other podcasts, but is uh, intelligence. Intelligence is a, is a, you know, at least moderately heritable and probably a bit more than moderately heritable. And we know that intelligence is beneficial for uh, solving a wide variety of problems. Mm. But women's preferences for intelligence does not shift at ovulation. Okay, so, so there's, there, there's the conceptual issue of what qualifies as markers of good genes. I, I have a knee-jerk knee response to that. What we mean by intelligence now is quite a bit more nuanced than what counted as a evolutionarily important difference in intelligence, you know, even a few hundred years ago, much less. 75,000 years ago, right? So like if you're if all you're doing is clubbing one another over the head with rocks, being smart while you're doing that didn't <laughs> didn't didn't give much of a differential advantage. You know, hedge fund managers and software engineers and other um 
markers of differential success now are a bit like sperm banks, right? We just did not evolve to pay attention to those differences. Yeah, uh, yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I accept your your point, I guess, partially. Where I would push back a little on it is that, you know, the, we didn't just, our ancestors didn't just hit each over the head with rocks. They had to navigate social space, too, yeah. Nav- navigate social space and even, you know, the, the physical environment, you know, yeah. create, a, a na- navigate to habitats that had resources. And, uh, but yeah, the, the social intelligence hypothesis is one hypothesis for the evolution of, you know, high level, high levels of human intelligence. So, so I would push back a little bit on that. And I, and, and I think it's an open question. I mean, if you go to, I don't know, traditional hunter gatherer societies, do the people that they call intelligent, would they be the same people that we call intelligent? Right. But, but I, of course, recognize that your, your point about, you know, we have very specialized, you know, skills and abilities in mathematics and, and hedge fund managing and so forth that, that wouldn't have been relevant ancestrally. But, but I want to get back to this, the second problem that I see, and it actually relates to the issue you brought up very early in our conversation, which is the replicability crisis. So it's very difficult and time-consuming to do this ovulation research. You know, you really have to track women over time and over a number of cycles to really document it well. Uh, and the attempts, so there have been several large-scale attempts to replicate these ovulatory shifts in ma- mate preferences uh, and that have failed to find the effects. Mm. Uh, and so the effects are either a lot less replicable than initially thought, or they're a lot weaker than initially thought and require much more sensitive designs to detect. And so I think that there are, you know, both conceptual problems with a good genes hypothesis, as well as uh, empirical problems. Okay, so we're back to the, um, the man and the woman, however hapless they might be. Let's say they have one child and Tolstoy got here first. They're happy families and and unhappy ones, and the happy ones are all alike, and the unhappy ones are unhappy in their own way. But how do the predictable variants of unhappiness here conform to the different mating strategies, right? So, I mean, just take the response to infidelity, let's say that, or just imagined infidelity. You ask the wife to imagine, you know, her husband cheating on her and vice versa. What do each party find most disturbing about that consciously, and how does that relate to their different mating strategies uh, biologically? Yes. Well, uh, there, I think, were two questions embedded in your question. Is what, what, one is, uh, what, what are the sources of unhappiness in, cu- in couples? And then the second is, what, what are the sex differences in the nature of jealousy and infidelity? And basically, there, there are, and the, these are highly replicable. Uh, and, and one is a, st- a real cool study on verbal interrogations when you when people discover that their partner is cheating or might be cheating, and men want to know, did you have sex with him? And women want to know, do you love her? And so this sex difference, when you imagine your partner being unfaithful, uh, we've done studies where we we ask. Let's say your partner got emotionally involved with an affair partner and had sex with them, had passionate sexual intercourse, which aspect of the infidelity would bother you more? And women are much more likely to say that the emotional aspects, the falling in love, the 
attachment, that those aspects bother women a lot more than men, whereas it's the sexual aspects that bother men a lot more. And so there's, you know, not that women are overjoyed about finding their partner having sex. Um, They're not. They're upset about it. But uh, as, of course, they should be. You know, having sex does is a cue probabilistically to leaving the relationship. I mean, men sometimes do abandon their wives and, and mate switch as well as some women doing that. Uh, but the, the, the triggers of jealousy and the psychological weighting of them differ in men and women, which corresponds to the sex differences in adaptive problems, where if a man has sex with another woman, it doesn't compromise a woman's certainty that she's the mother. She's still 100% certain that she's the mother, no matter what. Uh, but if, if a wife is having sex with someone else, that compromises uh, his certainty in paternity for whatever you know, future offspring exists. And also, interestingly enough, also, it also more strongly signals that the um, desertion from the relationship, uh, because women tend to fall in love with men they have sex with mm-hmm. more than men fall in love with women they have sex with. So that, this gets back to another sex difference in our reproductive or, or sexual psychology, which is that men are more comfortable having impersonal sex with virtual or total strangers, with women that they've just, just met and know nothing about. Women are much less comfortable on average with impersonal sex with no psychological connection. So, uh, so the sexes differ in these very predictable ways. Now, back to your question about what causes unhappiness with marriage, uh, one of the best studies was a cross-cultural study that uh, Laura Betzig uh, did. She's a, uh, I think she calls herself a Darwinian historian, hmm. uh, but she, she looked at the, cro- the Harvard cross-cultural cultural sample and the causes of dissolution, causes of divorce that were listed in this cross-cultural record, and she found at least some sex differences right along the lines that, we're, that we've been talking about. So a male's failure at economic provisioning uh, is a, a cause of female-initiated divorce. Sexual infidelity on the part of the woman is a cause of male-initiated divorce. Uh, somewhat older age is a predictor of men divorcing their partners. And, and you know, we know that this is another fact of our reproductive biology, that women's reproductive years are compressed in a much smaller number compared to men. That is, men, men's fertility does decline over time. Their sperm quality declines over time, but much more gradually. Whereas women's fertility, their ability to reproduce, declines more sharply with increasing age. Uh, and so what you see is marriage and divorce and, and remarriage, and then sometimes, you know, sometimes multiple times, what I call the Elizabeth Taylor syndrome. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the uh, things like the, the age gap between husbands and wife and w- wives who at first marriage, second marriage, and third marriage, from a male perspective, the average gap in the United States is about three years at first marriage with the woman being younger. If he goes on to a second marriage, it's five-year age gap. If he goes on to a third marriage, it's an eight-year age gap. And so the behavior on this, uh, the remarriage and remarriage uh, and age of a partner, it doesn't fall precisely along the lines of 
that, that you would expect. So you might expect, I don't know, a 50-year-old man to be trying to marry a 20-year-old woman. But marriage, of course, has other functions other than just simply finding the most reproductively valuable partner. We have, there are social functions, alliance functions, you know, uh, connecting extended kin group functions. And so, uh, but, but if you look at what, so if you look at what men prefer, as men get older, they do express a preference for sexual attraction to women who are increasingly younger than they are. This is to, to the distress of, um, of some men. I mean, it would make life a lot easier if they, if they didn't experience mm. that. And, but, and men who are in a position to do so some, sometimes act on those desires, so, but, but imperfectly. In your book, you, you discuss what are called mate value discrepancies a lot. The short form of this is, you know, the guy is a six, but he uh, is married to an eight, right? This is to take the, the superficial gloss on physical attractiveness. But um, there's obviously more to it than that. There's the, you're sort of ranking men with respect to social status and, and access to resources and, and anything a woman could plausibly value in him, and uh, therefore the, the likelihood that women outside the relationship w- would want to poach him. And with women, you're, you're weighting those sorts of things as well, albeit differently. In research, how are mate value discrepancies assessed? I mean, how, do you act- how do you actually perform a, an experiment where you're able to say anything about you know, what people are seeking and what people find and, and the tensions introduced in a, in a relationship when there's, when there's a discrepancy? Yeah, okay, that's a, that's a great question uh, or collection of, of questions. So what, what I refer, mate value can be viewed as sort of overall desirability on the mating market. And there are uh, when I talk about mate value discrepancies, I'm referring to consensual uh, mate values. So that is, if you had a panel of ten, you know, impartial judges, you know, how would they assess the value of the uh, of the man versus the woman? So, in in terms of measurement, it's it's of course a lot more difficult. In part because, so, as you allude to so many different attributes go into one's mate value, in, especially in long-term mating. Mm-hmm. And that's a critical distinction, long-term versus short-term. So it is things like uh, intelligence and kindness and sense of humor and dependability and emotional stability and good health. And you know, even things like um, women are especially attentive to how this guy uh, treats pets or, or children. You know, uh, so guys who, you know, start out saying they, they hate children and hate pets, that's a bad sign for a long-term, from most women's perspective, mm-hmm. for, for a long-term mate. But in terms of measurement, there are mate value scales that people have developed that try to get at this. These are, of course, very imperfect. In one of my original studies of, of married couples, what I did is I had a male and a female interviewer interview the couple for about an hour and then subsequently independently of each other rate each partner on their overall mate value. And so that was one study that, that I did. But it's, it, these, all these measures are, are, of course, imperfect. And the other important point to make is that 
consensual mate value is one thing, and I think it's a very important thing, but there are also individual individual components where uh, the value of someone uh, uh, of a mate could be very high for one person, very low for another. So, you know, I don't know in in your case, but let's say that if you had a um, partner who was um, uh, intellectually incurious uh, or 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 didn't think science was a legitimate way to find out things about the world, that might be problematic for you, but it might not be problematic for another individual who thinks science is just conducted by a bunch of eggheads. Mm-hmm. So there, there, or, or in a case that I actually know, woman values uh, in men, guys who are deeply steeped in Russian literature so that she can have these high-level discussions about Russian literature. With them. Well, for most people, that's probably not a central mate preference mm-hmm. or, or component of mate value. So it's, so it's important. And it's, it's fortunate that there are these individual differences because that means that not everybody is going after the same mate. But nonetheless, there is consensus about the qualities that go into mate value. There's a lot of agreement about physical attractiveness. So people have consensus about who's more attractive than others. And it's that consensual mate value that, I'm, that I mostly talk about and it creates problems. So I think overall, people tend to pair up or assort on similarity in mate value. So the, the, using that 10-point scale, the eights with the eights and the sixes with the sixes. Okay, but sometimes there are discrepancies. Uh, and sometimes an initially well-matched couple can get discrepant over time. So let's say, and I think this is something we saw in the, in the pandemic, actually, where some people lost their jobs. And so, uh, and, and women are generally understanding, but if the job loss continues for too long a period of time, women start to get unhappy. And that's, that's one of the things Laura Betzik found in her study of causes of conjugal dissolution is that the, the long-term failure to provide economic resources is, is a source of conflict, a sex-linked source of conflict mm. and a sex-linked cause of divorce. So, but, but in the modern environment, you know, you could become, you know, your mate value could become impaired. You could lose your job. You could get injured. You could, uh, you know, catch some disease that is debilitating or it can increase. You can, you know, write a best-selling you, book. You can get really into Russian literature. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and in a way, I mean, the modern environment provides many more paths to elevate one's status and, and recognition and accomplishments. I mean, in the athletic arena, in intellectual arenas, in fiction writing, and, and you know, creating interesting apps for cell phones, uh, there, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of ways to increase your status in the, in the modern environment that, that weren't available ancestrally. Mm. I mean, ancestrally, a man's status was primarily, you know, is he a good hunter? You know, does he reliably, literally bring home the, the bacon? I got to think the internet has changed the landscape here in ways that are quite significant and that, that I have no, you know, first person understanding of really. I mean, I got I to think that, for instance, dating apps have made this calculus all too explicit. You're swiping right or left and creating data for other people to analyze. Have you done any research with respect to dating platforms and what we can glean about human preference uh, on their basis? 
I haven't myself, but a number of my colleagues have, and even some people who run the internet dating dating sites, some have published statistics on, on that. And and yeah, we do know a lot. It is a, talk about an evolutionarily unprecedented uh, mating environment. Ancestrally, we would have encountered perhaps uh, a, a few dozen potential mates in our entire lifetime. Whereas with internet dating, you you now have potential access to thousands or perhaps even millions of possible mates. And so and so it's um, it is an evolutionarily unprecedented mating environment that is that is quickly becoming a dominant mode of how people fi- find even committed partners, in addition to casual sex and mm-hmm. hookups. Uh, but we know, for example, that studies of response rates actually conform to the sex differences in mate preferences that we've been discussing. So men who, for example, have either high status jobs or mention something about their income, if it's high, they get more responses from women than guys who are lower in status or have fewer resources. Women who are physically attractive, the, the, the appearance of women, attractiveness, they get a barrage of hits as well. And then even things like height. So, so women tend to prefer, again, on average, men who are not just taller than they are, but slightly taller than average. And so what do we find on these internet dating sites? Studies of deception, where men tend to round up their height. So if they're 5'10", for example, they might round up and say that they're six feet. Uh, they, they don't, you know, it's, they don't do it. In, in, in a wild way that would be so transparent and easy to discover had, if you ever met in person, uh, but they, they shade the truth a bit. So that's one thing. Another thing is that we know that men, and this gets back to this another source of conflict, which is desire for sexual variety, that men more than women use these internet dating sites to pursue casual sex, short-term mating opportunities. So one statistic that I mentioned is that uh, something like 30% of men on Tinder, it has been reported, uh, are, are actually married or in committed relationships and looking for something on the, on the side. And a, a more, an even more stark one that I talk about in the book was this uh, website called uh, AshleyMadison.com, mm-hmm. which is a, a Canadian-based website. And their motto is, life is short, have an affair. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's a website explicitly designed for married people to have have affairs on their or partner, and one of the things one of the things that happened is hackers, computer hackers, got upset with them because they uh, not because they were advocating cheating, but because they failed to delete personal information after they had requested after some users had requested it be deleted, and they found out that it wasn't, and so they they basically threatened to expose who the, the people who were using the website unless they shut down the website. And they didn't, and the hackers did expose the names of many, many people, and it turned out many prominent people were on the site. But uh, didn't they also expose the fact that there were something like 20 million men on the site and only a few <laughs> thousand women? Yes, right. yeah, yeah. And they had, yeah, and so they gave the, the illusion that there were you know, many more attractive women who were actually using the site, married women who wanted to have affairs, than was in fact the case. It was a dramatic difference. Mm. And basically, they had um, created fake, fake profiles, you know, of 
to, to make it seem like there were more women on the site than there in fact were. So, but again, this, these are, so these are a couple examples that illustrate these fundamental sex differences in our, in our evolved sexual psychology. Another way in which it, these internet dating sites you know, tamper with our psychology is that people tend to aspire to mates who are kind of at the top of their mate value range. One study found that people tend to shoot for mates who are about 20% higher than, than they are. And by being exposed on these dating sites to thousands and thousands of people, uh, there's always the impression that there's going to be someone better right around the corner or the next coffee date I have will, will be even better or more perfectly embody what I really want in a potential mate. And so there's a, you know, what's sometimes called mate, uh, decision paralysis. Mm-hmm. You know, where if you're exposed to too many choices, you just can't can't decide on one. And so there's there's I think that phenomenon going on. There's also the fact that these sites do I think facilitate short-term sexual hookups, and that could and this is speculation, but that could interfere with people forming long-term committed relationships. And we are right now seeing a pretty startling cultural decline in marriage rates and also reproductive rates. That is, people are having fewer and fewer children. And this is occurring not just North America, but also in in Western Europe and then places like Japan and Korea as well. Is it correlated with um, online dating? Well, I I, I don't know. I, I don't, haven't seen any studies that, that have looked at that, but online dating is present in all those cultures that I mentioned. Do you, do you have the numbers off the top of your head? Can you put numbers to the decline? Well, uh, a lot of countries, so some surprise me. So uh, I, I can't quote exact numbers, but there, many countries are now at, at below replacement levels. Right. So they estimate that you, you have to produce, each couple has to produce 2.1 children, children on average to replace the population, given that there's some attrition due to child mortality and, and death. Uh, so 2.1, and many countries are, are below that. Uh, and in fact, the United States would be below that were it not for immigration. Right, right. And even the, the country that really surprised me on that one was Italy, because Italy is, is predominantly a, a Catholic country where, you know, reproduction is encouraged and Technology that interferes with mm-hmm. reproduction is discouraged, but but nonetheless, Italy also is currently experiencing a sub replacement level of reproduction. So, how does um, everything we've said thus far interact with the cultural construct of polygamy? I mean, there there have been polygamous tribes and social arrangements, and then there's a a fad uh, within. You know, Silicon Valley culture that I've detected for um, polyamory. What, what do we know about these life choices and how people make them on the basis of this kind of evolutionary logic? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I'll just say a, a few things about it. You know, one is that, you know, in my view, we humans have evolved a menu of mating strategies. That is, we don't just have one mating strategy. We have we have long-term committed pair bonding. We have short-term sex. We have infidelity. And importantly, in the modern environment, we also have a serial mating. That is mating with one person, what I mentioned earlier, with divorce and remarriage, divorce and remarriage. 
or even, you know, just coupling up for a period of time followed by a breakup and then coupling up again. With respect to things like polygyny, and poly- polygyny is where one male, multiple uh, wives, uh, polyandry is one female, multiple husbands. That is statistically rare in the cross-cultural record. Hmm. It's been argued that we evolved, and I think this is probably pretty accurate, as a mildly polygynous species where men who, who were exceptionally good hunters or who had a lot of status and resources could have two or three or occasionally more wives. And so I think that uh, that desire, uh, and I think part of that's a desire for sexual variety. Part of it is motivated on the male part as a desire for sexual variety. And so if you look at the modern phenomenon of polyamory, it is often, although not always, but often initiated by the man and uh, who wants to you know, satisfy that desire for sexual variety. And, and this is a total speculation, but my speculation is that the women who agree to it, and there's actually some evidence for this, but it's not rock solid, that the women who agree to it basically are trying to retain their partner. And so they agree to a polyamorous arrangement, you know, so that he won't, he won't leave her. And so, and so there are sex differences even at this level. Again, on average, there are some women who, who do initiate it. Although, yeah, although by your logic, it could be a, a mate switching or a, a mate backup strategy for the woman. Huh, yes, interesting. Yeah, I- interesting. It, it, it could. I, I have to tell you this uh, anecdote, Sam, of uh, this one polyamorous couple that I know. And I asked them once about the issue of sexual jealousy, because this is an issue that comes up in polyamorous arrangements, you know, like, are you okay with your partner having sex with or or becoming emotionally involved with someone else? And what was interesting is this uh, male and female is that the the male said uh, the the woman happens to be bisexual. He he was okay with her sleeping with other women, but really didn't want her to sleep with other men. And so even though she did, he really tried to put pressure and discourage her and said that really the thought of her sleeping with other men is really what bothered him the most. Whereas she said that the thought of her, they're now married, her husband having sex with another woman didn't bother him at all. Uh, but one time he saw her, he, she saw him walking down the street holding hands with a former girlfriend, and that's what enraged her and, and triggered her jealousy. And so it was interesting to me that these Sex differences, the yes, well-documented fairly, sex fairly conventional. These are these are swingers, but they're they've got fairly conventional evolutionary psychologies. Yes, yeah. yeah. And the other thing is, you mentioned Silicon Valley. You know, I wonder. You know, it's typically historically men who have a lot of status and resources that have been able to mate with multiple women and mate polygynously, and so it's possible polyamory is just a modern manifestation of that. And if that's the case, then I would mm. expect men who have status and resources to be more successful at trying to implement that strategy. It would seem that there would be at least some evolutionary downside to polygyny. I mean, polygyny is a kind of winner-take-all or winner-take-most circumstance that leaves a lot of unhappy young men, I want, we can imagine, uh, in its wake. I mean, so we have the the modern phenomenon of 
incels, but you know this this would go back hundreds of thousands of years, presumably, if we have organized ourselves into tribes where some men have all the women and many men, if not most, have none. Yes. So a couple points to make about that. So one is that even in polygynous cultures, that is where men are legally entitled to marry multiple women if they can, if they have the resources to do so, uh, even in those cultures, some people prefer monogamy. And so you see, you do see monogamous, you know, relationships, even, even when, you know, the alternative can be implemented. But a second thing is, I think ancestrally, and there's pretty good evidence for this, a lot more men died mm-hmm. early. So the, the homicide rate, right. rates were much, much higher ancestrally. And so this, although, although this, this could a, be the reason. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think, it, I think it, 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 is, it is the reason. Uh-huh. I mean, you but have, it does um, solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you have f- fewer men and a surplus of women, then, then yes, that does that all so- solve the problem to some degree. And, but but the, the, the interesting thing also is if you look at the molecular genetic data, that these sexual asymmetries are, are marked there as well. So they're in, in, you go to places like Ireland or Iceland or Norway or China, like the inner and around the former Mongolian Empire, what you see is a, a much less variability in the Y chromosome, which is contributed by the male, than in the, in, than in the Xs. I'm pretty uh, sure. I'm pretty so, sure it's uh, Genghis Khan screwing up those data. <laughs> yes, but 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 similar. Yeah, so that, that's why it's it's been estimated from this molecular genetic data that something like 16 million men who live in and around the former Mongolian Empire have this chromosomal signature uh, that was almost surely Genghis Khan mm-hmm. and and his sons. But a similar phenomena, not quite as dramatic, have been also now noted in some other countries like like Iceland. And, and Ireland and some of the Scandinavian countries. And even if you go back to like some of the ethnographies, like the, the one of my favorites is, uh, and one of the most well-known is by Napoleon Chagnon, uh, who wrote a book about the Yanomama mm-hmm. who live in Br- Brazil and other areas of South America. And the, he, he asked them, why, why do you go to war? So there was a lot of intertribal warfare. And they said, well, of course, to to capture women. Why do you go to war in your culture? And so Chagnon said, well, you know, to spread democracy or, you know, so some other things. And Yanomamo basically fell off their logs laughing. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they said the only reason to risk your life in warfare is for women and either to capture women or to recapture women that have been taken from you in a, in a previous raid or warfare. Right. So, oh, um, oh, the irony that that's the main reason for spreading democracy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what do we know about the psychological well-being of people in these modern arrangements? I mean, is, is, is there data there? I mean, it's obviously a self-selecting group of people who think they can survive this and even flourish under conditions where most other people w- would judge the circumstance to be just totally hostile to their day-to-day equanimity. People in a polyamorous relationship have consciously committed to surmounting the fairly 
hardwired response of jealousy at the prospect of their their husband or wife uh, sleeping with someone else. That is, in fact, the plan. What do we know about these people? Relatively little. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we do know there are older studies of polyamorous relationships, and the older studies show that they tend to be very unstable. So that is with, with breakup rates of like 90%. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also don't know whether it's actually increased in the modern environment or whether it's just less, uh, there's less stigma attached to it. And so it's talked about more. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the answer to that question, but studies are, are currently being conducted on, on these arrangements. So I'm, I'm sure in five years, we'll have the answers mm-hmm. to some of those questions. Do, do you know Jeffrey Miller? But, uh, yes, I yeah, do. Yeah. So he's, he's someone who's, uh, who can talk a lot about this. He, he was on my podcast a few years ago, but anyway, he, he would be an interesting person for you to talk to and get to, to ground truth around this. What do we know about the condition of stepchildren in light of all that we have said thus far? Well, that's, that's stepchildren are a source of conflict. Uh, so that's something that, you know, we know that uh, Martin Daly and Margot Wilson have, were the first to really document this, that being, having a stepchild as the, in the home is the single biggest risk factor for child abuse and even at the young ages infanticide and obviously it creates a conflict of interest if it's if it's a woman who brings a stepchild in then and let's say the couple reproduces then so you have one stepchild and then one child who is the genetic offspring of both then then there's you know comp- conflicts of interest there one interesting way in which I think it plays into the issue of mate value discrepancies that we were talking about earlier is that step ch- uh, children by another partner, they're usually regarded as a cost, not a benefit on the mating market. So they actually drag down the person's mate value. So let's say a woman you know, going on the dating market, with she has two kids by a former husband from whom she is now divorced. Well, she's not going to be able to attract as high a committed partner, a mate val- high a mate value partner as she would without those children. Uh, and so let's say, hypothetically, again, using that number scale, uh, if she were an eight without kids, the kids maybe drag her down to a six. And then a guy who's a six might feel very lucky uh, to, to get someone who is very attractive, but you know, comes at a cost of having to invest in those uh, in those children. And this is these are generalizations, and I know cases where you know step families are perfectly harmonious and happy, but it is a predictor of greater conflict in the relationship, and as I mentioned, greater physical abuse, and in some cases, if it's a female stepchild, sexual abuse. It's very easy to think of people in one's life who have you know happy families and with step-parents and step-children and all of it works out quite well. But the statistics you cite in your book are, are pretty grim. I mean, if, if I recall correctly, you know, being a stepchild is the kind of greatest mortality risk for a child in the first half a dozen years of life than anything else on earth. And also the, the prospect of being abused as a woman by your mate goes up, if I recall, fivefold if you have a stepchild in the home. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a dramatic risk factor, and, but, but from an evolutionary perspective, a very predictable risk factor. Yeah, yeah. So w- there's um, this phrase that uh, captures the, the highest you know, risk factors of personality with respect to men who behave badly, uh, you know, back to the title of your book, and it's the dark triad personality type. What is that, and what do we know about it? Yeah, that's. Um, I'm really glad you you raised that issue, Sam, because just to frame that, uh, my answer: uh, evolutionary psychologists historically, or, or at least traditionally, over the last few decades, have focused primarily on species typical human nature, universal psychology, or sex differentiated psychology. And I think that I was actually trained as a personality psychologist. And so I bring an individual differences perspective. And I think that that really is important to fold in to an evolutionary perspective uh, because it is a subset of men who are serial harassers and serial sexual coercers. And as you mentioned, it is that dark triad. So for listeners who may not know what the dark triad is, it's three personality characteristics that are correlated with each other, uh, but tend to lead to bad stuff. So they are narcissism, uh, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. Narcissism, hallmark of narcissism is a a sense of grandiosity, an overestimation of uh, one's value or one's attractiveness, uh, uh, one's accomplishments, and importantly, a sense of entitlement. So people who are narcissistic feel entitled to a larger slice of the pie than everybody else. And that includes a larger slice of the sexual pie than anybody else. Uh, Machiavellianism is basically a trait. And these are all normally distributed trait, personality traits. Mm. So we're talking about people at the high end. Uh, Machiavellian individuals tend to pursue an exploitative social strategy. So they're the cheaters, uh, liars, view other people as pawns to be used instrumentally for their selfish goals, uh, et cetera. And, and they tend to have a very cynical view of, of human nature. And then psychopathy is a personality dimension where one of the hallmarks is a lack of empathy. So, so these are basically cold, mm. cruel dudes. And, and I mentioned dudes because men score substantially higher than women. The, the, the sex difference is largest on that psychopathy factor. And they, don't, they might laugh if a, if a dog got hit by a car or if a child fell down and, you know, skinned his or her knee. Mm. Uh, they just, they don't feel any sense of compassion for the suffering of other individuals. And when you take this dark triad suite of personality characteristics and you combine it with a short-term mating strategy, that is the dispositional pursuit of casual sex, it's bad because people on uh, high on these traits are much more likely to sexually harass women in the workplace or on the street. Uh, and they're much more likely to engage in sexual coercion, that is using threats or, or force or the threat of force in order to get women to do, to do what they want uh, sexually. And so it's, that's why the, the one unfortunate aspect of the title of my book, When Men Behave Badly, is that I hope people don't think that I'm saying all men are bad because they're not. And it's not a book about male bashing because, in in fact, a lot of these men who do act badly 
not only harm women, but they also harm men, you know? And so I think a lot of men would be morally repulsed by any notion of forcing a woman into sex or, or making unwelcome sexual advances. But men who are high in this dark triad trait combined with short-term mating strategy, that's, you know, part of their um, mode of operation. And we've seen some very high-profile uh, cases in the news that, that brought about, in part, the Me Too movement. So like Harvey Weinstein, mm. he, he was definitely a dark triad guy you know, nasty, brutish, uh, had no empathy for his victims and, and, and basically pursued an, this exploitative strategy and was clearly very narcissistic as well. So, I mean, in a way, this is, you know, one of the goals of my book is that a deeper understanding of our male and female sexual psychology can help to reduce some of these harms some of these sources of sexual conflict that in fact affect a lot of people. And so I talk about some, in the final chapter of the book, some ways in which this information might be leveraged. And, and it doesn't provide any of the single, you know, like magic bullets where, where you see a lot of in pop psychology, like if you do the, raise people's self-esteem and all the problems will go away, you know, or you know, just teach people grit, then all the problems mm. will go away. It's it's much more complicated than that. Well, well, uh, the, the, but, in particular, the dark triad personality type is not uh, conspicuously lacking in self esteem, as far as I know. Yes, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, well, that's I mean, one of the hallmarks of narcissism is uh, is an inflated se- sense of self esteem. Mm. So, what percentage of the population falls into that? You know, that end of the distribution, I mean, where you would, that would qualify for being classified as dark triad. If, if I guess it's quite different for women and men. Do we know the percentages? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't really it, these these aren't categorical uh, elements of personality. They're dimensions, and so they're more or less normally distributed. And so and so when I refer to that, I'm talking about people at the high end. Mm. You can't attach a, a percentage. A percentage to it. And actually, that's one of the things they're finding out in clinical psychology or just psychopathology in general is that these sort of uh, diagnostic categories are turning out to be much more dimensional and continuous with normal personality variation than they originally uh, believed. Mm. But, but I got to think that if you take Hare's psychopathy inventory and you, you know, arbitrarily pick a, a high-ish score and then you look in our prisons and you discover something like, I don't actually remember the, the uh, metric off the top of my head, but you know, a score of 20 you know, is found in 4% of the general population, but in you know, 50% of the prison population or, or something like that. Is that right. Do we know anything like that with respect to these, these three dimensions? Yeah, no, 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 hmm. uh, we, we don't. But I, but I would say that those, the, those are often the unsuccessful psychopaths who end up in prison. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the really dangerous right. ones are, are the intelligent, successful psychopaths who are able to get away with it for years or decades. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I got to think, you might have said this in introducing the concept, but I, I would think that narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy are fairly well correlated. Is it routine to find psychopaths who are not Machiavellian? Yeah, yeah, no, they they are correlated, but they're not 
correlated, you know, 0.8 or 0.9. Mm-hmm. They're more like around 0.4. Mm-hmm. And they do seem to cluster together. So there, and there are different elements that predict somewhat different things. So when you talk about things like, you know, drugging a woman's drink so that she passes out in order to rape her, these are more, uh, psychopaths tend to be overrepresented there. So they're, so, so they're somewhat different. Uh, they have somewhat different correlates, even though there are they do correlate these three about 0.4 with each other. So why in evolutionary terms do these guys exist? Why have they not all been bludgeoned in a ditch somewhere over the course of these millennia? (laughs) I'm sure some, many of them have been bludgeoned in a ditch, but they are often very charming Mm -hmm. uh, and have cultivated at least some of them skills of seduction and abandonment. And so, and w- women find them, especially younger women, uh, sometimes are very attracted to these dark triad guys. They find them very exciting and, and daring and risk-taking, and they tend to put themselves at the center of attention. They tend to strive for positions of leadership and power. Uh, and, so, and these are things that women value. And like social status, one of the cues to social status is the attention structure. That mm-hmm. is, the high-status people tend to be those to whom the most people pay the most attention, and these dark triad guys put themselves at the center of attention. And so, um, so they do have many of the qualities that women find attractive, but they're disastrous as long-term mates uh, because they, they have no compunction about cheating, uh, infidelity, both sexual and financial infidelity, and also have very high, very high breakup rates and do m- more of the violent forms of mate guarding. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when, when there's a threat or let's say a mate value discrepancy opens up in a, in a marriage, some men, you know, try to be better, better dudes. You know, they try to be nicer or more compassionate or, you know, provide additional resources or bestow more benefits on the women. women. But the high dark triad guys tend to get more violent. Is there any correlation with physical attractiveness? Uh, not as far as I'm aware. Mm. There, there's uh, narcissists, phrase that I use, they, they think they're hot, but they're not, uh, in the sense of some of them, of course, are, but uh, I don't think there's any evidence that I've run across that narcissists are above average in attractiveness. Mm. It's interesting. Do you think these traits are, what's the optimum? For these traits, I can imagine that you know the lowest possible score for narcissism might correlate with depression, right? I mean, just having a a realistic but unhappy estimation of one's one's attractiveness to others, and whereas you know being slightly deluded in that regard might actually be preferential psychologically and adaptively. And I wonder if there's I don't know if we have a kind of an inverted U-shaped function here, yeah. where you want you want a little bit of these things to get things done. You want to be you want to be Machiavellian enough to understand how to navigate all of the the other um, zero-sum people you're going to be bumping into in the world, and you want to be perhaps psychopathic enough 
not to be overwhelmed by emotional contagion of empathy when in the presence of other people suffering. I mean, I've often thought that a, a good doctor, really any functional doctor, has a kind of inner inner psychopath he switches on to be, <laughs> you know, unconcerned yeah. by the sight of blood or the immediate emergency or and just to be able to function. I mean, it just but imagine what it would be like to be a surgeon in a you know in an, in an emergency room. And the kind of person who has to steel himself against or herself against the possibility of having to tell people that their loved one just died and having to do that day in and day out. When I think about what would be required emotionally to weather that well, it does, at least again, this is my folk psychological intuition working, but it does seem like you have to get your hand on the dial of psychopathy a little bit and, and turn it up to something above zero. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I, I think, I mean, I, I agree with those points you're making. I mean, often with pers- these personality distributions, there are optimal, optimal degrees or at least optimal with respect to some environments. Right. So I, I think one of, the, one of the interesting issues is that the modern social world creates so many different niches for people that different levels of these personality traits are going to be successful, you know, in some things more than others. And so even like, uh, you know, trivial example, but if you're in sales, for example, it pays to be really extroverted. So an an introvert's not going to do very well at sales. However, one of the things that I, and this isn't original with me, actually, I think Linda Mealy might've been the first one to propose it. It was a former evolutionary psychologist who's now deceased. But uh, is that the modern environment might actually be conducive for uh, selecting for increased psychopathy. And I think part Mm. of the reason for that, and I I believe this to be true, even though it should be treated as a hypothesis, is that in in the ancestral world, everybody knew everybody else. And so you you had a social reputation. And if you were too psychopathic, then and, and abuse people within the group at, at any rate, you would have been ostracized or killed. In fact, Richard Wrangham basically makes this argument in, in, in his recent book that uh, people ganged up and killed some of these bad dudes. But in the modern environment, uh, the reputational damage that would have been very costly to a psychopathic strategy is minimized because psychopaths can move from environment to environment and escape the reputational damage that they would have incurred in the context of small group living. So you have large urban centers, you have greater anonymity. And then even like on, in getting back to the internet dating, there are sexual predators who exploit internet dating websites precisely for that, you know, for, for sexually coercing women. And some, some of them have, have made the news before, but I think a, a real change is needed for the internet dating sites to protect people from sexual predators. Mm. But so anyway, but the, yeah. the point, the point, the general point that I was making is that it's possible that the levels of psychopathy have increased over the last few hundred years. Right. Right. Is there anything about how we're navigating the the Me Too moment that you think is less than wise, given uh, our understanding of uh, the relevant psychology and norms here? 
Is there anything that we're doing that we shouldn't be doing and things that we're not doing that we, we should? Well, the, the, I think one that I would highlight is, you know, and I, have, I haven't followed the Me Too movement with sufficient alacrity to know what agendas people are advocating uh, for that. But I think one issue gets back to one that we talked about earlier of sex difference denialism, mm. where, you know, sex difference denialism, it really harms women. And to give a specific example of that, take sexual harassment. If you take the same set of acts of sexual harassment, touching a, 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 someone's body without their permission, you know, you know, propositioning them in the workplace, et cetera, women view these patterns of sexual harassment as, as more harassing and more upsetting than men do. Men just evaluate, well, that's so what? It's like guys sometimes are like that. And so may, men and women really do have a fundamentally different sexual psychology around this issue. But our laws and policies on sexual harassment are all written in a gender-neutral language. There's what's called the reasonable person standard. Would a reasonable person evaluate this pattern of conduct as sexually harassing? Well, if it's a reasonable male judge, for example, he might consult his own intuitions and find that pattern not as harassing or not as upsetting as a reasonable judge who is a woman. Uh, and the same applies for, for juries. And so in a weird way, I think that the failure to recognize these sex differences in our sexual psychology as their trans uh, have ended up creating laws where what constitutes a reasonable person, it, there doesn't exist a generic reasonable person if the sexes differ fundamentally in their evaluation of these patterns. Same with stalking, by the way. There are very few crimes that are evaluated by the psychological state of the victim, but sexual harassment and, and stalking are two, two such laws where we have to understand the, the underlying psychology and failure to do so it, it is really problematic. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a law professor or a policy analyst, so I can't, I can't say, well, what, what should we do about this? But I think uh, awareness of it is it is really a first step in the right direction and an acknowledgement that men and women do differ fundamentally in the, in their underlying mating psychology. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a world I haven't spent much time in and never have to spend time in now. And so it's, I do feel like it's way more abstract to me than it should be to comment on it because it's where most people live. But when you imagine what it would be like to be single now, and holding down a full-time job uh, where you know, most of the people you meet most of the time are th people you're meeting through work. It's not, I mean, I guess, obviously, that there's the outlet of online dating, which we've just discussed, but the fact that there seems to be what's recommended here is a more or less a complete moratorium on dating in the office because navigating the power hierarchies there and doing it in a way that doesn't leave one open to allegations of uh, sexual harassment. It just seems, seems like the, the mathematics are too difficult now or judged to be so. And so it is considered a door that is best not opened. But it, it seems unlikely that that's a stable cultural norm. I mean, it, it seems like that's a pendulum swing that is going to correct because I, I just I can't imagine people living that way in the end, if in fact, 
you know, people are, are spending all their time, virtually all their time at work uh, in, in certain you know, chapters of their lives and fallen in love with people in that context, you know, and the biological and even cultural imp- imperative to be available to those connections. It just, it seems like that the rules, the rules that are being grafted on to human psychology here and the, and the expectations that are sort of front of mind now can't really survive yes. contact yeah. with uh, our human psychology in the end. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that's important to distinguish is in these modern workplace environments is, is short-term sexual harassment, where basically you have someone in a position of power who's just trying to gain sexual access to a woman. Uh, and I think that has to be distinguished from, you know, long-term pair bonding or long-term committed romantic relationships. Mm. So just, you know, at, at, at my university, so, so it's not like, it's not the university's business or uh, the business of business to regulate who people can have relationships with, you know, consensual relationships. Where it becomes problematic is, uh, and so in my university, for example, people, if you form a, a romantic relationship with someone in the workplace, uh, you basically have to just report that fact to, you know, let's say the chair of the department or someone, someone in a position so that that, so that that consensual romantic relationship is not, is not forbidden, uh, but it just has to be acknowledged so that, for example, people aren't put on committees where they're in charge of evaluating the merits mm. of someone who's a romantic partner. But then what, what about when there is a power differential? For instance, I, I can think of at least one academic I know who um, is happily married to a woman who was his graduate student, right? So yes. it's like that. So how did, is, is that just verboten now in principle? Uh, well, I don't, I, I don't know. I think that has to be tread carefully. But I know, I know many such instances. And I, and I think getting back to a point that you made in, the, in setting up this question, uh, is things that go against our evolved psychology. So that as we know, women are attracted to men who are, have status and power and resources, and men are attracted to younger women, uh, whether there's women mm-hmm. younger than they are. And so you have like a, you know, uh, people's mating mechanisms getting activated quite heavily in the, these workplace contexts. So I, I think that, you know, you, I, I don't know where it'll all end up because at least, I mean, university settings is what I, I know the most. And in university settings, once a policy gets put in place, it's almost impossible to dislodge it. So at least within one's, one's lifespan. So new rules and regulations always get added. None, none ever get subtracted. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know, I don't know how long we, we will be stuck with this kind of hypervigilance or, or potential freeze on, you know, legitimate relationships. But, 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 but that's why I think there is this spectrum where it is typically where you, when you get a, a dark triad guy in a position of power, he will often sexually harass multiple women. And this is why, I mean, I think getting back to this individual difference, it is not all men. Right. Most men do not sexually harass, period. But a subset of men commit the majority of acts of sexual harassment and tend to be serial harassers. And so the, these dark triad men, uh, I think identifying them, 
identifying cues to, to them is an important step in, in trying to curb this. So I, I guess what I would say is you want, you want to curb these bad aspects of male sexual behavior, uh, but perhaps not put a total freeze on legitimate formation of friendships and relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Well, David, it's fascinating terrain and obviously of, of great consequence. Uh, is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to touch here? Uh, maybe I'll just mention one that I think is, I think it's one of the most important chapters in my, in my book, uh, which is a chapter on, on defenses against sexual coercion, where I talk about, and it's really a fascinating domain where if women have been sexually coerced and sexually harassed over evolutionary time, and I think the evidence is overwhelming that they have, it would be astonishing if evolution failed to create defenses to preserve female choice. So these are all male strategies that bypass female choice. And female choice is, I regard it as like the first law of mating. That is, women you know, have the right to decide when, where, with whom, and under what circumstances they, they have sex or, or engage in mating. And male attempts to bypass female choice are truly problematic. And so what that chapter does, and I would refer listeners to that chapter, is uh, which defenses are most effective in the modern environment and which tend to be least, least effective under which circumstances. And given that we the science, the state of the scientific knowledge is, of course, is incomplete on these issues. But, but that chapter provides the most comprehensive taxonomy of women's defenses against sexual coercion. Do you want to run through some of those defenses? Uh, well, w- one of them is fear. You know, the the, the wisdom and tragedy of fear is uh, fear fear of strange males, fear of being in unlit circumstances or dangerous circumstances. Second is lack of bodyguards. So I think bodyguards have been critical to protecting women over human evolutionary history. And these would be fathers, brothers, or sisters, or even female friends, uncles, you know, there's people who really care about, about the woman. And given that we evolved in sm- these small groups, women were surrounded by, by bodyguards. And in the modern environment, you have women who, let's say, go off to college, and they go off to college, you know, a, a, a thousand miles away from right. their, uh, their friends and family. And so they don't have the bodyguards that they formerly had. But I think bodyguards have been absolutely essential. And then there's one that is really interesting and important. I'll just mention this as the last example of these dozen or so, is um, tonic immobility. And this occurs in something like 30 to 40% of rape cases where it's like a, it's an involuntary response when the woman experiences a tremendous level of fear and a high level of physical entrapment where, she, where there are no escape routes and, and she can't get out. And, and she literally, uh, it, it's not like freezing exactly, but the, her body becomes immobile and uh, there's some analgesic features so she she doesn't experience pain and one of the un- and i think this is clearly an evolved response you see it in some animal species by the way when they're attacked by a predator mm-hmm. they experience tonic immobility and 
what I, what, what, where this becomes problematic is how people interpret that because people say things to the women like, well, why didn't you fight them off? Or why didn't you, why didn't you do more to prevent this? Or maybe even think that may, there might have been some element of consent w- with this. But so I think that deep knowledge of the fact that, or the, the notion that this is an evolved involuntary defense designed to prevent damage to the woman under these situations from which escape is impossible, I think knowledge of that will prevent some of the blaming and even prevent some self-blame because women often feel terribly guilty and feel like it's somehow their fault or that they should have done more to prevent the rape when in fact it is an involuntary response. Well, it's um, it was a fascinating book, and uh, again, reminding the audience when men behave badly, uh, we certainly didn't cover all of it here. So, thank you for your time, David. Was, I, I actually I just recalled that you and I wrote a paper together, although we we wrote it with I think eight other people, with uh, you know, Marty Hazelton and Steven Pinker and and uh, Paul Bloom and several others. So um, Michelle Gelfand, they, 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 a bunch of them have been on the podcast. But uh, so we we've never met and we've never even spoken before. But we are uh, we are collaborators. Yeah, on uh, <laughs> uh, for this was the uh, pandemic exposes human nature for PNAS. Uh, so I'm happy yes. to say that my yeah. David Bus number is 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 one, uh, which it wasn't before the <laughs> pandemic. So uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was a that was a fun paper to write, and, and I'm honored to appear with you and 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 all those people that you mentioned who I have a lot of respect for. Yeah, yeah, likewise, likewise. Well, um, thanks again, David. I hope to connect in person one day. I look forward to that. Thanks for a great conversation.